Welcome to the Perilous Realms, and I am your guide, Paul Lytle. We are finishing up the Hallowing of Ground today, and so um, I'm really, I'm really excited. We've finally, we've gotten through, we've gotten through our first book, and so um, yeah, that means I, I, I've got to, I've got to pump up work on the second one. I've gotten, I, I you know, I've kind of divided the second book into 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 sections that are kind of helping me kind of plan things out. Section one is in really good shape, and and uh, I mentioned last week we're probably going to be reading that on Twitch on the on the twenty second. Well, I needed to push that uh, back until the second of March, and so if you do if you do uh, catch this before. March 2nd, then I do encourage you to find me on twitch.tv slash technofunkboy and uh, follow me there. Um, and if you do miss that, um, uh, if, if you do catch it within, I think I think it's a couple of months, you'll, you can catch the the, uh, the video on demand there. Uh, we will be reading other sections in, in the future, but the, section, the first section is going to be like the first five chapters, and it is in really good shape. The second section is mostly written and... Uh, maybe a third of it edited. And so trying to, trying to keep up on the proofreading and the editing as we go. And so, uh, it won't be ter- too far behind, but we're going to be actually doing a short story next. And, um, I- I'm going to take a, to take uh, one week off and then we're going to return with a short story that's going to take us two weeks to do. And then we are going to start, uh, serializing the next uh, the next novel which is called the darkness and light it is going to um uh, it, it it does stand alone it, it does have uh it it does exist in the same universe as the howling of ground uh but it is a um a, a much uh, a much much longer story of uh, of a dwarf and um his uh his his uh experiences through life uh and so I, i'm gonna uh, we'll, we'll talk more about that as we come but finishing Halloween ground today next up is the glitch between worlds and then and then we'll kick in on uh the darkness and light and so, uh, what happened last time is the the fight with Fortosio has begun. The party is a little uh, a, a little separated from one another. Crethen is uh, underneath the ground fighting Fortosio directly, um, while Fortosio has summoned his stone beast, which is uh, kind of an elemental creature that uh, created itself from the gravestones of the cemetery uh, where they are, and so. That is where we're picking up is, is the emergence of the stone beast, and we will we will follow it through until the end. It has been uh, it has been a pleasure getting these out. Um, I've uh, I've enjoyed revisiting this story, and uh, and I cannot wait for the next one. And so, hang on uh, if you have not if you haven't uh, you know committed and subscribed. With this is this is not like a feed of just one book. This is going to be several of my works, and so. Keep uh, uh, go ahead and subscribe. There is more to come, but first we need to finish this one. So let's get going. Seventeen. Fortosio was on Crethen as soon as the latter had managed to slip into the cave just ahead of the piling earth and stone, collapsing into the cave's mouth. 
The vampire slammed into him, pressing him hard into the tunnel wall. The dirt covered them again, exploding in a small cloud around them. It went for the kill right then, hissing as it exposed its teeth and lunged for the neck. Crethen twisted around, planting his shoulder between himself and those teeth as he was still being driven into the wall. It was much too close for swords, so he grabbed his dagger from his belt and embedded it into the vampire's belly, giving it a good twist at the end. The pressure on him lessened for just a moment, but it was enough. He pushed himself off the vampire then, toward the side, and snatched his crossbow as he fell, firing it as soon as he landed. It was too close to miss, and the bolt buried itself in Fortosio's chest, cutting between two ribs and into a lung, and the monster howled at this, its eyes red with rage. It wasn't the best position for Crethen, so he was only barely able to scurry over as the thing swung its sword down at him. The steel clattered on the soil there, but it hit no skin. Crethen was on his feet then, backing cautiously farther into the tunnel as he loaded another bolt in the hand crossbow. Sprocket had increased the tension and it almost made the motion too hard in that all too brief moment, but he was able to lock it in place and set it aside, a bend in the tunnel not allowing a clear shot quite yet, so he drew his sword instead. It was only a moment's reprieve, but it did accomplish two things, the reloading, but also in the realization that he had been right before. This is how Fortosio had escaped, tunneling, probably for the full year, from its grave to the house nearby, which meant that going farther in would bring them to its coffin. He wished he had brought some holy water. Holy water. One thing that was good about wearing a scarf over your eyes is that it's a lot harder to give away that you just had a good idea. It was also a lot harder to get dirt in your eyes. The vampire was there then, around the bend and leaping at him in a way that only the massively strong undead could do, nearly flying with a swiftness that no man can really get used to. But while he wasn't used to it, Crethen was ready for it. A quick sidestep put him on the edge of the trajectory, and he was already swinging his fist, weighted by the hilt of his sword, well before the vampire's leap reached its apex. He caught it in the temple and followed through with the blow to smash it into the opposite wall, blood splattering as the thing's head caught a stone. The vampire twisted again, throwing his own fist, and Crethen only managed to deflect it slightly as it caught him on the shoulder instead of the chest. It popped him like a brick, and he was pushed back by the weight of the blow into the packed dirt behind him. The vampire rained blows on him, but Crethen was already moving, staying just an inch from each as he twisted in a better position and managed to puncture its side with the dagger. It retreated a step, and a step only, and both struck out with their swords simultaneously. A quick turn of the wrist took both blades to one side of the corridor, while the two bodies went the opposite way, and Crethen charged in, throwing his weight into the vampire. It didn't do much, but the point was to get better position to use the dagger again. The new wound made the vampire retract its sword, which gave Crethen the moment he needed. With a grunt, he thrust his own sword upward, burying it into the layer of soil above their heads. Once through the packed dirt that made up the ceiling to the tunnel, it found the soft topsoil, and the entire section came crumbling apart on them. He had been right. 
They weren't far from the surface, maybe a couple of feet, but as that couple of feet of dirt came crashing on him, both combatants were instantly knocked down on the ground, buried by the weight of the earth. But while it hurt Crethen, there's a sharp cry from Fortosio as smoke began to rise from its skin. He knew that it was the top layer of dirt that did it. The priest had spent a year hallowing this ground, and Crethen had just dumped it on the vampire's head. 18. Mirella was covered in muck by now, the dirt clinging to her as it fell from the sky, clinging to the sweat on her clothes and skin and becoming one with it. Her lip was quivering as she stared at the beast, watching it move about, apparently looking for something, its every motion causing more destruction to the buildings and trees. Debris was falling all around the graveyard now, sometimes as a fine mist of dirt, sometimes as massive sections of felled trees, every step tearing apart the very ground. Most of the townspeople had scattered by this point, but a few brave souls still stood on the outskirts, lobbing arrows at the stone beast, but not finding much success in it. She suddenly wished that Crethen had left his bow behind because her crossbow was far too far away to do any good, but with a sudden swell of determination and resolve, she knew what had to be done. The gnome beside her was already firing as she went forward, sword brandish and ready at her side as she went. The going was not simple. The entire graveyard was in shambles now, and so her jumps had to be carefully placed to avoid slipping in the low parts and crevices. As she came, the beast turned and suddenly stopped its movements. It had found what it was looking for. Of course, it's us. Mirella sighed as she came, and the monster charged also, its heavy footfalls causing the ground to tremble at their impacts. It thankfully wasn't that fast, but the two reached each other too soon for the woman's taste, and Mirella scurried beneath it as it tried to swipe with one of its front legs. The stone limb came across over her head, and she dove in hard toward the other front leg, slicing where a normal wolf would have a tendon. The sword clattered over the stone as it hit a piece of a sarcophagus, but Mirella would not turn away. As that leg came back at her in reaction, she rolled to the side, stabbing upward as she did, catching a bit between some of the stones and cutting a segment of it loose. A tombstone came off the beast and fell down with a thud beside her. She rolled backwards, pushing her way onto her feet as she did, just in time before the leg came back down, scratching at the place she had just been. The stony claws ripped apart the ground as it went, knocking the dirt into the air again and leaving a great gash on the landscape. The thing seemed even larger from behind it, Mirella was noting. She wouldn't be able to reach the belly with her sword, even by jumping, though a good half of its legs were in range of her blade. She couldn't even see its head at the moment, but she watched as its huge tail whipped around, cutting around its body and toward the ground right where she was. A desperate dive to the side was the only thing she could do, and she hit the ground hard, the wind getting knocked out of her as she landed. The tail struck the ground just beside her, rocking the immediate area on the impact, but as quickly was it withdrawn, and the beast twisted its head around and down at Mirella with mouth open wide. Sprocket was there even quicker though, appearing as if from nothing on his knees beside Mirella, looking up with guns blasting into the thing's open mouth. It didn't seem to help that much, only to knock some of the stones loose so that they rained down on them, but the head was still coming when Sprocket's shield came on spinning out above the two of them, and as the stone beast snapped down, it found it only got a 
mouthful of the shield. The metal wedged itself inside its gaping jaw, stuck fast between its teeth, and it clamped down on it, bending the metal, but it did not break. The two were up then, the distraction giving them a moment in which to work. Mirella immediately went to one of the legs and found a gap. She drove her blade in and felt it tug at the magical bonds that held the thing together. They came loose, and the leg began to tear apart. But she also remembered that the water elemental was able to rebuild itself, so she wasn't all that encouraged. It's, it's like the water snake, she told Sprocket as they ducked under it again. Behind them, the shield snapped in two under the stone beast's powerful jaws, and it was ready to fight again. What water snake? Sprocket asked, confused. Seriously, Sprocket, you were right there. Was I? How did we kill it? You electrified the lake and shocked it. Sprocket stopped a moment, considering that and looking at the beast. Huh, he said. I don't think that will work this time. Stone doesn't conduct electricity as well as water does. Sprocket! Mirella replied in frustration, grabbing his hand and pulling him away as the thing's tail came down on that spot, leaving a dent in the ground where it landed. 19. Crethen shook his head as he was attempting to stand. That hurt more than he hoped it would. Yet another good thing about not having eyes, a blow like that would have him seeing double. As it was, he was dizzy and sore, but his sight was good, and he could see that Fortosio was starting to stand too. Slowly, and also with much pain. He wanted to go faster, to re-enter the fight with lightning speed, but his muscles weren't obeying as they should. He was panting, he was cold, he was shaking. He felt as helpless as he did when... When... His head was erupting in panic. He was going to die. He was going to die. His shaking hand could hardly keep hold of his sword. His perception was clouding, getting jumbled by memory. Memory of teeth, of blood, of helplessness. The faded twin puncture wounds on his throat were burning, like it was happening again, like it was all happening again. He saw the sights again, as though through his own eyes again, those last images that he actually saw with his own eyes before they went forever black. The helplessness of his blade, the effort he made just to finish the job, and he couldn't do it as much as he tried, and the teeth pierced through, and the blood came. From that point, there was nothing. No movement. No fighting. No resistance. Anymore. He cried out then, a primal scream, and the cold hit him again, tracing ice along his spine. And he felt himself being lifted up and pushed against the wall. The faces were twisting now. Was it that other vampire? A vampire whose name he had never even known? Fortosio. Was he in a dark room of a house or underground? The images were clouding between the past and present, and he thrashed about with his sword, smacking against something, and then the sword was knocked from his hand. You hit your head too hard, Fortosio was saying, but it seemed like an echo rather than something in front of him. But it was clearing up. He shook his head, and the memories that had overlaid themselves on his situation drained out. And there was Fortosio, holding him up and against the wall with one hand, his skin smoking and leaving his face blackened and scarred. His other hand held the sword, readied with its point forward. I'm trying to decide whether to kill you or turn you, Fortosio was saying. 
You are magnificent, you know. I misjudged you yesterday. I saw something special then, but I did not see the fullness, speed, and strength. I have not seen the like in my admittedly short lifetime. You would be such an ally to me. The turning would only amplify what you could do. Together, we would be unstoppable. Crethen laughed. You're not the first to try, he said, tilting his head, revealing the scar on his neck just above Fortosio's hand. The vampire hissed in surprise, and Crethen kicked his hanging crossbow up with his knee, catching it, turning it upward, and firing in a single motion. The bolt jumped upward obediently, catching the vampire right in the neck. It let loose of Crethen as it screamed in agony, and the man wasted no time hurrying down the tunnel. He knew that wouldn't kill it, but it probably hurt like hell. He would only have a moment. The tunnel didn't go much farther. Its terminus was a literal grave, a hollowed out part of the ground where sat a wooden coffin, its lid off and leaned against the wall. This is where Fortosio had been buried a year ago, where he had patiently fought his way out, ever so slowly shifting the earth around him, packing it on all sides just to make for himself a little room to move. For a year he had dug, shifted, packed, pushed desperately hungry, desperately thirsty, and yet not dying. He'd probably widened the tunnel in the last week so it'd be easier to get to his resting place, probably preparing to move the coffin out as well. Crethen began to turn, trying to ready himself for the end of it, but he was too slow. The vampire had already entered, more tumbling forward than jumping, and the two bodies collided once again. Crethen felt a rib crack at that one, and again he was against the wall, but this time realizing he had left a sword farther back. His crossbow was unloaded, so he took his dagger and drew the other sword, but he was facing the wrong way. Fortosio slammed his head on the wall again, and Crethen struggled mightily against him, but it wasn't budging. The vampire pulled him back and drove him into the wall a third time, but this time Crethen intentionally fell, and the sudden and unexpected move caught the attacker off guard. They both stumbled down into the coffin lift, which snapped apart into splinters at their combined weight. Crethen had a chance then, and he kicked at the creature violently until he had a small space to work with. He scrambled to his feet and turned, and the vampire was coming at him. He had just a split second, and he shifted to deflect the blow while turning so at least his weapons would be in place. It didn't help. The very force of the collision knocked them out of his hand as he collapsed on the mangled coffin lid again. This time Fortosio was on top, and the vampire reached over desperately and grabbed Crethen's lost dagger. He raised it over his head with both hands, the tip pointed down. What could have been, it said, then smiled. But you had to make this to the death. Foolish. Crethen snatched a piece of the broken coffin lid off the ground beside him and thrust it upward as the vampire's weight was coming down, the point coming with enough force to pierce the skin over Fortosio's chest. The wood cut through its heart then as Crethen kept pushing, driving it further. Fortosio started to stand to try to get away, but Crethen stood with him and pushed more and more until the end of the coffin piece buried itself into the wall, staking the vampire there against the earth. It was yelling now, its anger and pain overcoming it as Crethen retrieved his sword from the ground. With tired motions, he used the stab at the ceiling above Fortosio's head, and with a few twists, it started caving in on it, bringing hallowed ground upon its head like burning coals. 
The cries were grotesque now and painful, but they were turning into whimpers as Crethen struck with his sword one last time. Fortosio's head bounced off the ground once before coming to a rest, a look of true fear frozen on its face. The final light of dusk was coming in from the newly formed hole, and while Crethen couldn't see it, he could, in fact, taste the fresh air coming in, and it was wonderful to him. It didn't last, because after just a single breath, the ground above him was stripped apart, being torn away violently, and a massive creature made up of all the graveyard structures revealed itself above him, and it was ready to fight. Stone Beast, he said, gulping. 1489 DR For the greater part of a decade, the Forgotten Realms has plunged into turmoil and confusion. Numerous wars were fought in the east and the north, and thousands were killed. In the south, the seas receded while earthquakes and locusts plagued much of the land. Sailors from long-forgotten lands made port on the Sword Coast, and a great rain fell over the sea of fallen stars. As the decade ends, the Frostmaiden Oral has plunged Icewind Dale into a perpetual winter. Violence once again finds itself on the streets of Waterdeep and rumors of war leak out from the east. Cast into that world are three adventurers on the road for the first time. I'm Desdemona, and I play Ami. I'm Jen, and I will be playing Mirabella. Hi, my name is Chris Rusho, and I am playing Bocera Splitfish. And I'm Rob Christofferson, the Dungeon Master for Rolling Through the Realms, an actual play Dungeons & Dragons podcast. New episodes drop every other Tuesday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app of choice. 20. The beast had gotten distracted for a moment there and started digging furiously at one particular area of the graveyard, and Mirella thought it was rather odd, but she was willing to accept the momentary rest. Until she realized what section of the graveyard it was at, near the same house they had come from in the beginning of the battle. Crethen, she called, hurrying forward. Sprocket needed no encouragement. He came too, firing at every opening he could. They were knocking stones off of it rapidly enough, but the thing was just too big and never seemed to weaken. Mirella went underneath it again, swiping at tail, leg, or whatever she could find, almost randomly, just to get its attention. It worked. She turned abruptly as its head snapped at her, its stone teeth landing just a hand's breadth behind her. It shot forward again, and this time the woman ducked beneath, slicing with her sword as she turned right underneath its jaw, and stone began raining out from its massive head. Maybe, she thought, we could at least cut off its mouth so it can't eat us. Sprocket was there then, and his guns were firing into its great face, saying, How does lead taste? And the thing stopped moving. Sprocket looked slightly confused as he quit firing, but held his weapons out and ready, watching it closely. Mirella took the time to shift herself from underneath its head and move to the side, her swords up. It began to creak faintly, the sound of stone rubbing on stone, and then it began to sway. I killed it, Sprocket said. Then we had better get out of its way when it falls. 
The two went then at a full sprint toward the side of the graveyard, their legs burning as they hurried away. But it was a very proper speed because the stone beast was coming apart, and while it started slowly as the magic began to weaken, it seemed that the bond finally snapped suddenly, and stone and bone came crashing down, cracking and breaking on itself as it tumbled into a pile of debris and death. The cloud it made engulfed the entire town square, enveloping all those who had stayed behind to fight it, the houses and the street, the fountain and the tavern. For a long while, it was all they could see, the dusk of broken tombstone and shattered skeletons and more dirt than they could ever imagine. Mirella covered her mouth in her cloak and closed her eyes to not get the dust in them. And thus they waited, because there was nothing else they could do. But time brings all things down. From the greatest of kings, to the oldest of elves, to the dust cloud over Felstad. Mirella looked up again, and she could start seeing the basic outlines of what remained of the graveyard. She hurried forward, gasping, Crethen. Without further delay, they were back in the graveyard, a place that had been completely and utterly changed in the last hour, and they followed the high ground around to where they had started, the last time they had seen Crethen. What they found was not what they expected. It was a smoking skeleton, leaned against the side of a dugout crater, the area the beast had been digging out toward the end of battle. It was headless, staked against the ground and supported only by a long piece of wood there. As fate would have it, the last beams of the evening sun had landed right upon it, and the two did not even need to find its head to know they were witnessing the smoldering remains of Fortosio. Mirella paused at this, and even as tears were forming in her eyes, she couldn't help but smile. You did it, she said, as if to herself. You won. She couldn't help but remember just over a week before, when she had dragged what she thought were his dead remains from a battle, a pool of blood left behind. But it hadn't been the end for him then, and he was different now. He had seemed lost within himself even from the first day they met. And now sometimes he seemed more lost than ever, but those moments were fleeting, and he always regained control. She was realizing that the change had been a good one. It had been very good for him. The overturned coffin beside the body shifted suddenly, and the woman yelped in surprise. Mirella? A weak voice came from behind it. Crethen! She cried and jumped down to lift the box off of him. He was there, like her, covered in dirt and sweat, bleeding and clutching his side. But he was smiling. You did it, he said, his cheeks red with pride. So did you, she said. He managed to get to his feet and hugged her, and the two stood there, entwined together, neither one wanting to move. Twenty-one. As the three emerged from the graveyard, the townspeople were returning to the scene, and they stood in amazement at the destruction left behind, some of them crying, some of them dancing, and some just staring with eyes wide. People asked, and when they did, the three confirmed that Fortosio was dead, and the news spread among the citizens quickly, and the excitement of the vampire's death spreading over them in laughter. Feathers, Crethen called, seeing the tavern owner just a little ways off from them. The young man enthusiastically came to the three, unable to contain himself. I, I cannot believe what I just saw here. You three are amazing. I want to hear what happened. Tell me everything. You are heroes. 
He got quiet then and said, You saved us. Tomorrow, Crethen said. Tomorrow we'll tell stories. Tonight, I don't want to sleep on the church floor. Do you have two rooms, please? The man laughed heartedly. For you, anything. Some food then? Do you, do you have a bath? Yes, and yes, and yes to everything else. You say the word, my friends, my dear, dear friends. You may have anything you wish. Crethen limped forward again, and Mirella put his arm around her to help support him as they went. They shared a smile then, and continued. Hey, guys, Sprocket said, stopping suddenly. The two turned to him, seeing that he had paused there, looking off down the street. I'll be a while, okay? The man nodded, and his perception followed the gnome as he went, and then he saw it. The body of Constable Odwin Finsberg, and there was a single mourner over him weeping uncontrollably, and no one else seemed to have noticed. It was Belsith. The gnome went to him, knelt beside the boy, and just waited there with him for a time. Crethen turned away, and the other two went inside, their movements pained and slow, but still they felt good. As they went, Crethen asked, How did you manage to take that thing down, anyway? Mirella shrugged. I think when Fortosio died, the magic on it broke. No, Crethen said, pursing his lips as he thought. Summoning circles don't work that way. A spell would be broken over a thrall at the death of his master, of course, but not something like that. 22. Down in the basement of a house that once stood on the edge of the graveyard, but now had completely collapsed, the magic circle waited in the dirt. But something was different now. Now there were hasty gashes over the perfectly drawn line, cutting into each and every connection, every careful weaving of magic. The stones were scattered over the room, having been kicked away, and right in the middle of the circle, as though stabbed into the heart of the beast itself, a stick stood upright, its end buried in the ground. Epilogue it, it will be for the best, Jake Mullen was telling some of the townsmen who had gathered in the town square to see the two sets of travelers away. Beside Jank was the boy Belsith, eyes still puffy from days of mourning. His adoptive father had been the first burial in the new graveyard just behind the church. The old graveyard was still a mangled mess, and it would be impossible to set it right again. They would keep the gravestones that they could, which were not many but otherwise the skeletons would be put into a single monument in the new cemetery. They'd need to find a stonemason to make it, but they wanted to make it the best they could, not just surrender centuries of their town's history to a raging vampire. Jenk continued, Trade is a good uh, trade, you know? I'll apprentice him right good, I will. Make sure he has good food and shelter. I'll teach him everything I know. You'll see next time I come through. You won't even recognize him. He's a smart boy. He'll catch on quickly. He'll do right for himself, I promise. They thanked him individually, shaking his hand and saying goodbye to the morning boy. Soon enough, they were gone, and the merchant and his new apprentice were alone in the light morning rain, the clouds over them making it seem nearly night, despite the sun having been up for some time. I don't know if I really have the mind for trading, Belsip was saying. Oh, I know, Jenk said, kneeling on the ground to look him in the eye. If the town has any sense, they'd keep you to finish fixing that aqueduct. 
but then they don't really need it, do they? So it'd just be something to keep you busy. Meanwhile, the one person who really could teach you has a job hunting vampires, and that job isn't the best for a young apprentice such as yourself, you know? The townspeople wouldn't approve. You, you understand me. I do, Delsa said, lowering his head. Not like me, you know, the big man said, looking off toward the three hunters who were loading their colorful carriage for departure. Their dog was happily circling the horse, playful in the growing puddles. It had been raining for a few days now. The reprieve of sunlight was long over. Not like me, he repeated. I've seen a lot of this world, and I don't think it's any safer with me than it is with them. In fact, staying near them might be the safest place to be. They protect each other, you know? Not enough of that these days. But the people around here wouldn't understand that, so I decided to take you on myself. It does so happen that we're headed in the same direction as they. Funny how that worked out. Belseth furrowed his brow suddenly, understanding what was being said. He looked up at Jenk's face, and the large man was smiling warmly. He winked and stood again to finish packing. A few yards away, Feathers and Idra were bringing food for the three as they were loading their things as well. Actually, some men from town were doing most of the heavy lifting since Crethen still had his ribs bandaged, and their pride was too much to allow them to watch a woman pack while they just stood doing nothing. Frankly, the three welcomed the help. They had stayed a few more days in town, but they were still sore and still very tired. You are welcome here any time, one was saying, shaking Crethen's hand. Thank you, he replied. You have all been very kind to us. I'm afraid the word of you three is going to spread even farther now, Feathers was saying. You can't keep good gossip from going out ahead of you. I noticed, Mirella said, rolling her eyes. We couldn't even get a meal in this town before being recognized. <laughs> you three kind of stand out, the cook said. He patted the carriage. These colors here don't help you either. Everything was up now, and Crethen climbed in the driver's bench with Sprocket. Mirella went inside, but opened the front window so she could be alongside the others. Wait! A voice came before they could leave. It was Belsith, running up abruptly, waving his hands. I, I have to know, he said, looking up at Sprocket. You, you knew the whole time, didn't you? You knew the vampire was using the pipes, and that's why you started repairing the aqueduct. Well, you know how it goes, the gnome grinned lowering his hat brim over his eyes and taking up the reins. With the gnomes urging, the horse began to move, and the carriage went forward, following the path into the mist of the morning, Gizmo's head sticking out from one of the windows, his tongue wagging about to and fro in the rain. Thank you for listening to The Hallowing of Ground, written and read by Paul Lytle. For more adventures of Crethen and Sprocket, please do check out the Dyson Dreary podcast on Apple Podcast or your favorite podcast catcher. If you enjoyed this production, please consider giving it a five-star rating and review. Tune in in two weeks for the start of The Glitch Between Worlds. The Hallowing of Ground was written and read by me, Paul Lytle. Copyright 2019. All music in the episode was composed by me, and performed by the Techno Funk Boy. You can find links to my Discord server and Patreon in the episode description. Paul Lytle's Perilous Realms is a Play Well Network podcast. <laughs>